Thank you so much, Elder Yib, for leading us in our time. We welcome everyone here and pray that the blessing of listening to God's Word, uh, for those of you who are new with us, we are preaching to this series called The Psalms, the 150 Psalms, and we are in Book 2, and today we arrive at Psalm 46. Let's begin by exploring the issue, and the story is told of a Sunday school teacher. The Sunday school teacher began that day, and uh, she was really generous and feeling really kind, and said to the class, today we'll begin with free drawing, right? Free-form drawing, whatever comes to your mind, what's your favourite thing, um, what's on your heart, just draw. And so she walked around the class and started to see some of them drew their favourite cartoon, their stories, some drew their school, I don't know whether that's a good thing, uh, some drew their holidays, their families, and then she finally came to this girl, and she had just started drawing, a little bit slow, slower, and the teachers uh, asked her, what are you drawing? And she said, I'm drawing God. And the teacher said, but no one has ever seen God. And no one knows what God look, looks like. And the child said, when I finish, they will know what he looks like. <laughs> so this is the God of the very special imagination of a child. Which leads us to ask, who is God to you? When you walk through life and experiences of life, especially the dark experiences of life, the painful experiences of life, the suffering experiences of life, who is God to you and me? And here are a few possibilities for us across the board. That for some of us, we acknowledge God mainly, the main thought about Him, the main mental picture about Him, the main heart uh, response to Him is that God created us. And lots of people walk around thinking that, which is good. For some of us who perhaps struggle with, we have been retrenched or we've found it hard to hold on to a job, God being provider is very real. That it is He who has provided this job, it is He that has kept this job and kept feeding my family. For some of us who have gone through a life-threatening illness, we know God mainly as healer. Because we pleaded with Him, and in His mercy, and in His love, and His power, He granted that healing for ourselves, or parents, or loved ones. For some of us, God is a teacher. For some of us, or many of us, we just want God to be a problem solver. And that list could go on, who is God? But you add the two words at the end of it, who is God to you and me? When we come to Psalm 46, the main message of, the main revelation of this God is that God is our stronghold. God is our fortress. And that's repeated three times right throughout the 11 verses. So a possible outline of the psalm runs along this way. Next one. That He's the God over nature. And then it changes and he's now God over his city, and we'll see what that means. And finally, he's God over the nations. And in tracing all this, the writer called the psalmist, he wants us to come to the main message, the, so what? So be still and know that I alone am God. That's the main message. And so we're going to travel through the contours to come to where he is and see what does that mean for us step by step, and finally, in the fulfillment of things. So God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. So His opening mental picture and His heart response 
is God is three things to him. Refuge, shelter, ever-present help. And what does each of this mean? One commentator said refuge perhaps is the external security. And so in the ancient world or the world of, the, of Palestine, the world of the Middle East where Israel found herself in, right, one place that she, you'll find refuge is a cave. So is God that kind of refuge? He is. And then God is our strength. It's not just God out there pro- providing external uh, security for us, but He's with us, or dare we say, even for Israel, within us. This God is with Israel. And so this is the inner presence of Him. And then the third thing, a very present help. A very present help. He's always present and always rescuing. So sometimes when you do your household chores, which you should rightly call household joys, and when you turn chores to joys, there's a total difference in the way you do it. But if we are still in household chores mode, you may think, you know, I'm here as the mother, I'm here as the father, I ask my teenage kids to help me clean the house. They are ever-present but never helping. So some of us are ever-present but never helping. But God is ever-present and always rescuing. My second sister who married an Indian, she came back one day, and this was already, he was in his old age, and came back one day and found her husband, my Indian brother-in-law, slumped on the floor. And then she walked in, and instinctively she asked him, right, in the bedroom, uh, beside the bed, what are you doing here? Why don't you get up? And what do you think was his response? If I could have gotten up, I would have gotten up. Because he was stage four cancer, and he was so weak, and that morning he felt especially weak. And when a person with an ailment, a person of age falls down, they have not enough strength to push themselves up. And my sister felt like a fool for asking him that question. What are you doing on the floor? Sometimes we're not present to help. Sometimes we are present and we can't help. Or we will not help, which are two different things. But God, to this psalmist, is an ever-present help in the face of life and especially of troubles. And so, he spins this off now. This is his knowledge of God. This is his faith response to God. And now he spins off the circumstances that he might find himself in on behalf of his people and nation. And what might it be? The earth gives way, the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble and is swelling. And this is the picture of utter total chaos. And utter total chaos is not chaos until it is life-threatening, my friends. Now let me ask you, earth and mountains, the created earth and the mountains, what are these symbols of? What did he remind us of? Earth. Just stamp your feet a little bit. Let's do that. This is solid, isn't it? This is really solid. You're very obedient. Right. This is really solid. You ever been through an earthquake? I haven't. But if you read of earthquakes, and there are two main places, right? Japan gets hit with it all the time, and New Zealand gets hit with it all the time because on the, on the same, what do you call that? Latitude or longitude? Are you here with me? on something. And so they, they have those earthquakes very, very often. And so I read 
twice of Christ church being hit. And you know the description of it, the terrifying thing? And then there was one in Sichuan. You watch that movie, it will break your heart that the very solid ground which you can stand on and trust for every step that you take, the ground is solid. Buckles. You know what buckles means? It's worse than Play-Doh. That everything you trusted as stability in life, and from stability comes security, from stability comes security, is gone from under your feet and all around you. And so is he speaking of earthquakes? Is he speaking of the seas? And for Israel, from the Old Testament to the New, the sea has always been a symbol of darkness, a symbol of chaos, and no one can control the seas apart from God. Israel's first experience with water, just for us to get our geography right, it's a landlocked country. It's totally unlike us in Singapore. For those of us, those of you tuning in on, on the podcast, Singapore is an island, just in case you may not know. And uh, we've got water, water all around us. But Israel that we are speaking about is a landlocked country. Her first experience of water was when she came out as a bunch of Hebrew slaves from Egypt. And her first experience of water was, what's your child's first experience of water? Sometimes your young child, three years old, four years old, their first experience of water is terrifying or they feel that they are drowning, but they are not because you're there to catch them. The first experience of Israel, who were formerly a bunch of Hebrew slaves under Egypt, was she almost drowned in those waters, apart from God parting it. And we'll look at that later. And so everything that was an external reminder of stability and flowing from external reminders of stability to internal security has just given way. It's life-threatening. The very sources have been turned on its head. And just make a side point here before we go to nations and wars. That the elements and the weather... So this is God totally in charge of natural disasters, totally in charge of climate and climate change. Totally in charge. And when we go to wars, if you know a little bit about history, just ask Napoleon. He tried to invade Russia. Then ask Hitler, 70 years ago, he tried to invade Russia, imitating what Napoleon tried to do because Russia is a huge country with plenty to take. The Russians know how to fight a war. They just wait for winter to come. And when winter comes, you die. Because we Russians, we are used to it. Any army commander and general that has ever led forces into war must have a healthy respect for the weather. To know that you may have created the best chariots, the best, uh, uh, the best weapons, but all weapons are subject to the weather in case you haven't realised that. You read any battle in human history, if the weather conditions were not right, you are finished. And that's what happened with the Egyptian army. And more about that later. So a healthy respect for God, a healthy respect for the elements under Him, and when the natural disasters happen, only one is over them. When all that we can trust 
from the orderliness of a created world becomes uncreated, unraveled. Your life and my life spins into spins into insecurity. And so that's very important, my friends. So what does that mean for us? Just in the first three verses, there is the psalmist and God and his faith in God. So, and his implications. For him, because God is refuge, God is shelter, and God is his ever-present help. Therefore, the implication of God and relationship with God is we will not fear. Which means that if you don't have God and faith in God, your life will degenerate in a moment of crisis into fear. Without God, if not a moment of crisis, your life will slowly slip into a series of phobias. Is that you? That the main emotion of your life is fear? either through a crisis. And friends, there's a huge difference as I was praying about this and thinking about this and preparing this between self-made stability and God-given stability. When you walk through a season of self-made stability and self-made security, you are very concerned. Self-made what? You think the wisdom of your mind, the strength of your hands, your networking got you somewhere in life. It's self-made stability and self-made security. When you are in that season, you're very concerned about what I call uh, the luxurious things of life. You're concerned about your name, your kingdom, your will, your glory. But when you, are, when you move from self-made stability and security to God-given stability and God-given security, you are fighting for your life. In a moment of chaos, no amount of self-made stability is going to save you. At the point of an earthquake, at the point of a flood, you do not think about your name. You do not think about your kingdom. You do not think about your reputation. You do not think about your, your glory. You just think about your life. Will I live when this strikes me? So please know the difference. Because some of us may be walking through a season in which things are so stable, so stable, and do not be lulled and dull and seduced and molested into thinking that, that stability is because you're walking so rightly with God. May not be. It's just your self-made stability, your self-made security, in which you're walking around and you're concerned about the luxurious things about your life, your name, your kingdom, your will, your glory. It's rubbish. And sometimes God has to strike you with a calamity to pull it from under your feet and say, please take note. You should be concerned about every breath of life and life. And the last time you check, every breath of life and life comes from God-given stability. It's not your own. It's not your own. Therefore, I will not fear. There are implications to God and implications to faith in God or else it's a dead faith. But this is a bet your life on God faith because there is a God who loves me, a God who is powerful. I can bet my life as I go to school tomorrow, as I go to ITE tomorrow, as I walk into poly tomorrow, no matter what it feels like, I can walk into my workplace, I can stay, I can do this in my life. And then the picture changes. 
like you were watching two movies or two scenes in a movie. The first one was of chaos and it's life-threatening. But now in verse 4 and 5, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The city of God, for those who are tuning in and perhaps never heard of it, is Jerusalem. The holy habitation of the Most High. And why is this city so serene and tranquil and stable and all its inhabitants are so secure? Because God is in the midst of her. It's not that this city is, has better architects, better design, but the ultimate st stabilizing force and security of Jerusalem, God's city, was God's presence with her. So God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Notice the contrast? There's a huge contrast. Because in verse 1 to 3, everything is moving, especially if it's an earthquake. Everything moves. The earth buckles. But in the city of God, nothing moves. It's stable. It's secure. You can walk around and conduct your life with confidence. And the other thing that gives hope, God will help her when morning dawns. And so there are a few things in there that gives us hope even though the earth has caved in. Let me just explore morning dawns with you because morning dawns is used a few times in the Old Testament of Israel's walk with God. Morning dawns. So in Exodus chapter 14, verse 27, so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst, into the midst of the sea. I told you earlier that I'll come back to this. And so God's people, they were being chased and their life was totally at stake as a whole nation. They were being chased and pursued by the most powerful, well-trained, well-experienced army of the world, the Egyptian army, which would have spent tons of money on their military defence budget. They are chasing a bunch of slaves who never knew, didn't know how to pick up a weapon, didn't know what a weapon was because they worked as slaves. So they are running from the best army in the world on chariots. They are running and who can rescue them as they see waters in front of them? God parts the water for them. And then, as the Egyptian army goes through, he just closes and they drown in the waters. Did you notice that God, in fighting holy wars, uh, has a zero defense budget? Because water is free. He just uses the elements. He creates, he can uncreate. He creates, he can unravel. And this is God. The God who is Lord over nature, the Lord who is Lord over nations, and more about that later. And then in Israel's history, the prophet Isaiah said this, and that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in a camp of Assyrians. I've probably given you the wrong thing. It's probably two kings, sorry. And people arose early in the morning. Notice, early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. Now what's the picture here? What was the situation? They were besieged, God's people, and they were besieged, 185,000 strong, 
So it was a dark night and it was a hopeless night. But by morning, God had reversed their life-threatening situation. So what's the lesson for us? There's a pattern. There's a history of God's story of salvation. That God is refuge. That God is shelter. That God is ever-present help. That God is fortress to His people. And so be open that though we walk through dark nights, long nights, that seems like it's the end. This is the end. The morning looks different because God is in charge of all people and circumstances. And here was a life and death situation for them. And to see that the king just withdrew overnight, the Lord does this. He is indeed our fortress. So when the night looks ominous and dark and hopeless, please believe that we believe in the same God, that when morning dawns, this God of love and this God of power to accomplish His love might reverse the circumstances for His beloved people. And so lessons of God's city, it is God's city. It has His presence. It has His love. It has His power. And that's why in this city, experiences his peace, his tranquility, his invincibility. And so the picture being painted for us in verse 4 to 5, God's city, is in total contrast to the first three verses of chaos and turmoil. You could call it an island of tranquility in a sea of chaos. And sometimes or oftentimes for us as God's children, we would walk through those seasons. And finally, in the last part, he will walk us through the nations. God over the nations. The nations reach. The kingdoms totter. And so, in the midst of the rise and fall of nations, the coming and going of empires, the only constant, everything's changing, everything's changing, everything's changing. The rise and fall of nations, the coming and going of kingdoms. And so, where do we see this, my friends? The, the Egyptian empire was the greatest empire of its time. Then came the Assyrians. Then came the Babylonians. Then came the British. That's why I speak to you with British English. Then came the Americans. Then came Huawei. Because the problem with Huawei is not simply or simplistically is bad business practice. Because America woke up to the reality that China's technological power has surpassed it in some key areas. That what has happened in Shenzhen 40 years ago has outpaced them. They never thought of this. And Shenzhen started because Deng Xiaoping visited Singapore for seven, uh, 40 years ago. And that's important. And empires have to know they come and go according to God's bidding. You can try to slow it down, it will still happen. You can never be empire forever. And God does that to strike the truth in us that He alone is King and no human ever rules forever. That's very important for us to realise that, my friends. And so, we are at the cusp. All of us seated here and listening to this podcast 
at the changing of empires. Will it be disorienting? Yes. Will it be turbulent? Yes. That's the way it has always been. But the number one constant is God speaks His word. He utters His voice and He's in charge of all things. And so, what do we mean by this? Come behold then the works of the Lord, how He alone has brought desolations on the earth. Just in case you think that nothing is understandable and nothing is controllable in a moment of natural disasters or man-made disasters, just read about how people are going through war and Syria is the place we should be concerned about. And did you notice that the world we live in is rather insecure? Because the Iranians, in all likelihood, bombed the Saudis. And as they bombed the Saudis, the price of oil jumped. If they attacked it even more, the price of oil will double. And you say, my goodness, what on earth is this about? This psalm is about God of the international politics. When the price of oil spikes and doubles, your life and my life gets a little bit harder. Did you notice that Turkey has just launched an offensive against the Kurdish? And it was the Americans who partnered the Kurdish to fight against the ISIS people. And say, what on earth does that have to do with us? Because they contained the ISIS there, and from that moment on, they spread all over the world. And they came all over Southeast Asia. And a radicalized ISIS person pulled out a dagger and stabbed the defense minister of Indonesia. Do you ever read the news and understand the world under God? That we live in a very fragile world that what happens there affects you and me here. But the only constant giving us stability and security is God. The Lord over natural disasters and the Lord over nations who go to war. And so, he pulls this together and says, come behold the works of the Lord. Verse 9, he makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spears. He turns the chariots with fire. He burns the chariots with fire. Come, sorry, I go backwards. And when you read this, it sounds very familiar because there are key Old Testament passages that speak about this in a similar way. Isaiah chapter 2, come. Let us go up where? To the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, because Zion, right, is, is the temple is built on Mount Zion. And on this temple, to this temple you go, the presence of God. He will teach us His ways. And when you go to this temple, as you leave this temple, you will walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And now, the pilgrims going to Jerusalem are no longer just Israelites. Is the whole world. He shall judge between the nations, the nations, and shall decide disputes for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, which means weapons have now become farming tools. Their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So he pictures the end time, and the end time, God will raise 
a new mountain. On this new mountain, there'll be a new Jerusalem. And to this new Jerusalem, you'll come and you'll meet a God of peace. And when you come to this God of peace, to the temple of peace, you will leave and there'll be no more capacity to make war. Notice that. Neither shall they learn war anymore. And so we know by the time we come to the New Testament, the new mountain and the new city and the new temple is fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who says that you destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the Jews told him, asked him in ridicule, it's taken us 60 years to build this temple, you will rebuild it in three days. But Jesus was speaking about his body as the temple of God recorded for us in John chapter 2. When we come to Jesus, and who is Jesus? Jesus is not the God of our human imagination. He's the God, He is the revelation and final redemption of God. And from our study of Ephesians, Jesus has come as peacemaker. So when He says, be still and know that I'm God, I'll be exalted among the nations. When the psalmist says that, I'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What does that mean for us? He's not asking us as New Testament hearers of this to go back and to become Israel and worship Yahweh because God's salvation plan has moved forward, has moved forward and found its fulfillment in its Son. But the lesson then and the lesson for us is the same. It's the same God unpacking His saving plan for us. And so God says to the nations, be still and know that I, Yahweh, alone am God. All the other gods that you worship among the Canaanites, among the Assyrians, among the Babylonians, among every empire that rises to threaten Israel, all your gods are fake gods. Stop rebelling, stop resisting, stop usurping the fact that I, Yahweh, the God of a tiny, puny nation is the God of all nations. Now, just let me try to illustrate that for you. We are, by God's grace, by God's common grace, a prosperous and a peaceful nation. Can you imagine Singapore telling every other country besides us, beginning with Indonesia, how to run their country? And if Singapore had a singular God that we worship, saying that, our country and our system and our God is the greatest God, is greater than the God of Indonesia, the God of every other country that's bigger, bigger than the God of India, the gods of China. That was the boast of the psalmist. We are a tiny, puny nation, but our God is the true and living God. So all nations around us, you've got to stop resisting this fact. You've got to stop rebelling against this fact. You've got to stop usurping this reality of the universe. There is only one God. He is the God of Israel. Now notice if you understand this psalm in this context, the first, most of us as Christians will quote this psalm for ourselves. But God didn't speak this psalm firstly to His people of faith. He spoke it to the nations rebelling against Him. Very important we get that right. And that's why this is a psalm with a global message. Be still and know that Yahweh of Israel alone is God. And all the nations who hear this laugh 
and scorn and ridicule. How dare you say your tiny puny king, God, is Lord of the nations. And so, God has brought this fulfillment to an end in the person and work of Jesus. And Jesus has come as peacemaker for us. And now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made, both, made us both Jews and Gentile one, and broken down His flesh, in His flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, this is what separated Jew from Gentile, Jew from Gentile. And the Jews thought because they had the law, they were superior. And Paul is saying, it's not that you had the law, you're superior. But the law was driving you to the end of the law, the fulfillment of it, the, the peacemaking work of Jesus. And that might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, through the cross. So ultimate world peace is not accomplished by Miss Universe or Miss World. Because whenever you ask them a question, it's Miss World Peace, World Peace. The ultimate world peace and eternal peace is bought by the precious blood of Jesus, loving us, suffering for us, dying and bleeding on the cross. And hence, we have, we have this. So did you hear of Don Austin, 69 years old. He fought in the Vietnam War, American soldier. And he was brave. How brave was he? He was so brave in a battle that he, they awarded him the Purple Heart. The Purple Heart is one of the hardest things to earn in the American army. And it is truly one of the best armies of the world. He's now 69 years old. And one day while he's looking after his three-year-old granddaughter, he walks up to the stove, right, of his house, let's guess. He lighted the candle, boom, it exploded. And the whole house was engulfed in flames. In the fire that, that broke out, the roof collapsed and collapsed on his granddaughter. He ran in and with all his strength, he lifted part of that roof and he cuddled her and he saved her. And now I read. And so he ran. Fire all around. Can you mentally picture? Fire all around. And he ran. And then he ran to his car to escape that. But the car key melted. And in this report, had melted to him. And his phone exploded in his pocket. So he's now on fire. Right? And then he runs with the grandchild. He manages to run a quarter of a mile through the woods, up a steep creek, and finally gets her to safety they find that Don Austin suffered 78% of burns to his body. He suffered a collapsed lung. He suffered broken ribs. He went through all that, but he managed to save his three-year-old granddaughter. And then, as much as they tried to save him in hospital, he died from his burns. So when I first read this story, I tried to picture the scene of him as a loving, benevolent grandfather probably saying to himself, what a fool I was to light that candle. How would he know there was leaking gas in the house? And how he cuddled that granddaughter, her name was Peytin, right? How he cuddled her, and as his own body was aflame, and he was suffering, breath by breath, 
breath by breath, step by step, he would have been asking God, oh, help me, help me, help me to save her. How far will you go to bring peace and life to someone? You've got to understand that the cross of Jesus Christ is infinitely greater than this. So when you and I wage war with each other, either on the macro scale as nations or on the personal scale in our hearts, it totally is abhorrent to God because He paid the price of peace by giving you the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's very important for us to realise, our friends. So, if we believe that all of God's purposes and promises to give us ultimate peace and security, peace with Him and peace with neighbours and peace with nations, comes only through the kingship and the lordship of Jesus accomplished by His sacrificial death and resurrection from the dead. And what does that mean for us? The be still is be still and know that Jesus is Lord. This is Dawn, Austin, with his granddaughter before the accident. How he must have breath by breath, breath by breath, step by step, just made sure that she lived even though he had to risk his life. Be still and know today that Jesus is Lord. And why is Jesus Lord? Because Jesus, in his parting words to the disciples, said to them, All authority has been given to me, obviously by God, his heavenly Father. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Is this language familiar? The language of all nations? That the tiny, puny nation of Israel will have a Messiah, and Israel's Messiah will be the universal Messiah of all nations? baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so the way for us to be still now is to acknowledge humbly that Jesus is God's end-time and eternal King and live as such. And for us to believe this, is to preach the good news and share Jesus prayerfully with as many family and friends here in Singapore and there in Davao and all over the world. And in our own lives, live with the goodness and the rightness of King Jesus ruling over every season and every moment of our life. You believe this? That the good news is going forward because Christians around the world have taken this to heart. Though nations rebel against this, we are to live in reverence of Jesus. So by God's grace, just about two, three weeks ago, I was invited to speak at a conference here, an international conference of a missions organization. And so I gave a few morning talks. And when you bring God's word, you're supposed God's word will encourage and build up God's church. Amen? But I stayed back after my talks because it was an international missionary conference, and listen to the testimonies of brothers and sisters in Christ sharing Christ, gospeling nations which are so hardened. And in one place, 
The brother who was assigned, they assigned by a roster over three days that each one would have 10, 15 minutes to share because there are so many candidates there and so many reports to give and so many strategies to, to embark on as they press the reset button of how we do this in difficult countries. And this brother got up to speak in his national costume. And as he spoke, he didn't speak because he was overwhelmed with tears. He just choked. And as God helped him to compose his tears, he just said, it's very hard where I am. Please pray for my two brothers because they just got the death sentence for sharing Jesus. When you have brothers and sisters in Christ who just got the death sentence and it's next month, your heart will break. And you would have to ask yourself, is Jesus King and Lord that I'm bringing this in obedience to Him? Then another brother came up, and this was another day. He says, where he ministers, there's a group of people with their very entrenched class system. For hundreds of years, in this group of people, in these villages, in this province, right? Whenever their daughters turn 12 years old, they give their daughters as, as prostitutes and as sex slaves to the kings and the royalty that rule that, that province. The kings and the royalty has now gone, but the temples are still there. And still now today, when their daughters turn 12, all their daughters automatically become prostitutes in the temple. When you go and preach the gospel there, and you tell them, God, this is not, this is, who you worship is not God, and God will never get your daughter to do this. When you preach the gospel and try to, they understand that, but to say that, stop sending your daughters there, you have cut off their main source of income. And when missionaries do that, they get beaten, they get attacked, and sometimes they get killed. This is the gospel all over the world, my friends. Will it come to our shores one day? I will say, you bet. Because the church of Jesus Christ never goes untested. Never. But on the final day, this man came up. He was a jolly man, looked like a Santa Claus, older than me. And what work has God given to him all those years? His work was to just go through, and in this place, he was slightly friendlier. Where he was was slightly friendlier, in that they allowed him to go and share in primary schools and in secondary schools um, the good news. And so he would have 10 minutes to share, 10 minutes to share at the chapel thing, like what we have there at Kochuan uh, Secondary School, what we have there. Have you ever given a talk, a Bible talk, like to students at school? Have you? You should try it. I should roster you. They are really bought up. They are doing this, they're doing this. You know, at least you sit here and you pretend to look interested. And I'm very encouraged. You don't pretend, you are interested. Have you ever spoken to a really indifferent congregation? I went to one, right, ITE, years and years ago. They said, come and give us the, the Christmas message, ITE. I've shared this before. As I gave the Christmas message with all of my heart, with all my passion, as I always do, look at me now, right? All of my heart. Those fellows are behind flying aeroplanes, chasing each other. And I'm saying, oh, Lord, what am I doing? You know, I could be speaking elsewhere. You never feel welcome when you preach the gospel. You never feel like doing it. Never. But this back to this jolly man who looked like a Santa Claus. So he does this. 
He never knows what the reward is. It's just sowing, sowing, sowing. And then one day, one day, this person comes up to him and says, Sir, you remember who I am? Sorry, I, I don't. I'm getting old. I was in one of your classes. You always come and teach us and teach us simple song. Jesus loves me, this I know. Sir, I've just become a Christian. And he said, Sir, I'm going around sharing this with others and others are believing. You be still and know that Jesus is Lord. Amen? What does that mean for your life and my life? For you and me, stop resisting the fact that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Stop sabotaging this. Stop taking things into your own hands. Stop fretting. Stop struggling. So, have you ever asked why nations go to war and why you war in your heart against the other? We wage war always from insecurity. And then on the personal domestic level, we wage war because we are insecure. You will never be secure until you stop fretting and struggling that Jesus is Lord of your life. Then will flow that in undeniable, the unshakable peace and you don't have to go and plot and manipulate and manoeuvre people around you. You just trust that Jesus is Lord of your past, your present and your future. He's Lord of your heart. He's Lord over every relationship. He's Lord of your boss. He's Lord of your colleagues. Though they may be scheming against you, He's Lord of everything. Then you walk out and you walk each day a secure man and woman. You have no more capacity to wage war because your heart has been consumed by the security of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So somewhere along the line, you have to say you live in reverence of the Lord Jesus. Somewhere along the line, you have to say, enough is enough of me trying to make myself secure, of me trying to handle my relationships, of me trying to patch my marriage, of me trying to handle the future for my children. Enough of self-redemption. Let's go for Christ loving us, Christ saving us, Christ providing for us, Christ protecting us. And this be still and know that Jesus is Lord is not a call to passivity. It's not a call to do nothing. It's a call to humility. And the call to humility is the call to do the biggest thing in your life. He is king and I'm not. I promise you, if you ask for this moment by moment, you'll be a totally different person. Amen? I don't hear many amens. It's because you haven't arrived at that position. By the grace of God, I've arrived a few times and will keep being a work in progress. The times when panic comes in, when people threaten our lives, you run around helter-skelter. So once I got a phone call and we were having a leaders meeting and the phone call was this lady on the other side on the end of the line, before handphones. And she said, I just rang you to say that years ago, I didn't like you, I didn't like what you said in your sermons, so I sent the CDs of your sermon, the, the, the cassettes of your sermon, to the, to the authorities to get you into trouble. 
I'm sorry I did that. I'm so sorry I did that. Because I know now, years later, it wasn't you, it was me who was feeling insecure. And what you said was from God's word. How do you think I felt when I got that call? Firstly, I tremble. I knew. In pastoral life, you always know your life is on the edge. And at that time, my children were young and I was chairing that meeting. Yet at the same time, I was comforted. Through all the troubles and all the risks and threats that people have brought from outside church and within the church, by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, the Spirit has always drawn me to the Lord Jesus. Stay there, Chris. Stay on your knees. Stay on your knees. It's not a call to passivity. It's not a call to no action. It's a call to the greatest action. You cannot control this. You can't protect yourself. You can't protect your family. You can't protect your church. But I will protect you. Life will increasingly be an experience of that. The peace and the security that Jesus Christ offers us. The end of warring in your heart against others. Let's stand, pray, and sing in glory to God. By your grace and by your spirit, enlighten us and then empower us. To say firstly with the psalmist that you are our refuge, our shelter, our ever-present help, that though the earth gives way and the mountains be moved and the seas roar and foam around us, we will not fear. And now we know that you have come as our ultimate sanctuary because there's a new meeting place between us and you. It is your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's His loving sacrifice. He's gone to the greatest extreme of laying down His life, absorbing your wrath and taking the venom of our hearts to create in us new beings no longer capable and desiring to make wars because we are secure in you, secure in faith and obedience to you. So let us be still and know that Jesus is King of kings and Lord and Lord, Lord of lords. And that is not a call to do nothing. That is a call to do the most important thing, to humility in all the seasons and in all the moments when we feel our life is under threat by people around us. And you know, O oh God, as we live in a fallen world, there are dangers and threats all around us. And sometimes even from those who perhaps in their own life may be churchgoers, but not true followers of Jesus yet. And they bring hurt and harm to us. We firstly commit ourselves to you, to be so loved by you, to be so saved by you, to be so protected by you, to be so secure in you, as we commit those around us and pray that your good news and your good son will enter their life by humble faith. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. Let's sing Jesus is Lord.